and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the House Judiciary Committee announcing an additional hearing on January the 12th, featuring the former Trump White House Deputy Press Secretary. Joining us to discuss the portrait that has emerged so far of a disastrously dysfunctional Chief of Staff in Mark Meadows is... Chris Whipple, an expert on how White Houses are run for better or for worse. He is a multiple Peabody and Emmy Award winning producer at CBS's 60 Minutes and ABC's Primetime and is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Gatekeepers, How the White House Chief of Staff Defined Every Presidency. And his latest book is The Spy Masters, How the CIA Directors Shaped History and the Future. We will discuss what we have learned and are about to learn about the chaos and conniving inside the Trump White House and also look into Chris's forthcoming book, The Fight of His Life, Inside Joe Biden's White House. Then we'll assess whether the party that shills for the plutocracy can get away with portraying itself as the party of working Americans when the recently released platform of the Texas Republican Party makes it clear how implacably hostile the GOP is to the needs of American workers. Joining us is Ben Burgess, a philosophy instructor at Georgia State University's Perimeter College, a columnist for Jacobin Magazine and ARC Digital Media, and the co-host of the Dead Pundit Society podcast. He's the author of Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left, And his latest book is Cancelling Comedians While the World Burns, a critique of the contemporary left. And we will discuss his article at the Daily Beast, Culture War Red Meat is All the GOP Serves the Working Class. Then finally, we will look into the real driver of inflation, which is corporate price gouging as opposed to workers' wages and discuss the need for the Biden administration to come up with a counter-narrative to the threat of inflation, which is driving down Biden's poll numbers. Joining us is Pierre Mullaney, co-founder and the director of the Center for Innovation, Growth and Society, and a senior economist at the Institute for New Economic Thinking, where she is the editor of their Working Papers series. She has held positions at the Harvard Institute for International Development and the Center for International Development at Harvard's Kennedy School, where she worked in collaboration with Asian and African governments on the development of health care and economic policies. And before we go to our first guest, since we are now fully independent, your support for this program is vital to keep us online and on a growing number of radio stations across the country. And while we operate on a low budget, we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org to help ensure that background briefing is sustainable into the future so that we can continue to provide a daily news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests, both at home and abroad. And for those listeners who have issues with PayPal, We now have made it easier to donate simply by credit card. So if you are in a position to give support or have been meaning to but have been unable, please go to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Chris Whipple, who's a multiple Peabody and Emmy Award-winning producer at CBS's 60 Minutes and at ABC's Primetime. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Gatekeepers, How the White House Chiefs of Staffs Define Every Presidency. And his latest book is The Spymasters, How the CIA Directors Shaped History and the Future. And his forthcoming book is The Fight for His Life, Inside Joe Biden's White House. Welcome to Background Briefing, Chris Whipple. Good to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, the explosive testimony that we heard a week or so ago from Cassidy Hutchinson, the chief aide to the last and final chief of staff that Donald Trump had, Mark Meadows, was obviously devastating. And it hopefully it's gotten the attention of the attorney general. And it certainly has gotten a lot of public attention. But the portrait that she described or that emerged of her boss, Mark Meadows, was so alarming. I mean, uh, we spoke a a while back, wasn't it, when you had an article saying that 
Mark Meadows is the worst chief of staff in the history of uh, White House chiefs of staff. So why don't you update that as we speak? Yeah, no, no doubt about it. Um, Ian, you know, the, her testimony, Cassidy Hutchins' testimony, uh, has sealed Meadows's place in history, his infamous place in history. Uh, you know, back in the day, there used to be um, a stiff competition for the title of worst White House chief of staff in history. Uh, I, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, Sherman Adams, who was known as the abominable no man who was run out of town because of payola scandal. H.R. Haldeman, Richard Nixon's chief, who went to prison uh, for for perjury and conspiracy in the Watergate scandal. Uh, Mick Mulvaney was a terrible chief of staff who, uh, you know, John Kelly, his predecessor, predicted that um, uh, that Trump would be impeached if somebody like Mulvaney became his chief, a, a, a yes man. And sure enough, it, that's what happened with the uh, with that infamous shakedown of, uh, of President Zelensky uh, and that perfect phone call, as you'll recall. But all of this just pales in comparison to uh, to what has happened, uh, what happened on Mark Meadows's watch. And and I wrote, as you know, that piece uh, in January of 2021, anointing Meadows as the worst chief of staff in history for, among other things, uh, helping Trump to uh, pretend that there was no pandemic, uh, costing God knows how many hundreds of thousands of lives. But he's outdone himself now with, with this explosive testimony. Turns out we didn't know the half of it. Uh, so it, he, certainly, uh, he certainly owns the title by a country mile. But the the image of him, while the capital is being assaulted and and capital police are being sprayed with bear spray and hit over the head with poles and kicked and stabbed and beaten and the glass broken and the hell breaking loose, and Cassidy Hutchinson is saying, you know, a lot of people want to talk to Trump, including his White House lawyer, Pat Cipollone. And there's Mark Meadows lying on the couch in his office, scrolling through his phone, which apparently he did a lot of the time, just sort of scrolling through these endless messages. And I'm sure these were messages coming from the Fox News top broadcasters, all of whom were alarmed and begging him to do something. There he is is scrolling through his phone. I mean, this is worse than rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Yeah, you know, I, I used to think that the defining image of Mark Meadows would be of him uh, mugging, grinning from ear to ear uh, in front of uh, Don Trump Jr.'s uh, video camera in the tent at the Ellipse uh, right before Trump went out to uh, whip up that crowd to march on the Capitol. But I'm now convinced the defining image will be of Mark Meadows sitting on that couch in the White House Chief of Staff's office scrolling through his phone while uh, while blood was being spilled at, at the Capitol uh, by the mob that uh, he and Trump uh, sent up there. Um, it's almost, you know, the the definition of the banality of evil, you know, that 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 image of Meadows. And again, I'm speaking with Chris Whipple, who's a multiple Peabody and Emmy Award winning producer at CBS's 60 Minutes and, and ABC's Primetime. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Gatekeepers, How the White House Chiefs of Staff Define Every Presidency. And his latest book is The Spy Masters: How the CIA Directors Shaped History and the Future. And his forthcoming book is The Fight of His Life, Inside Joe Biden's White House. So what do you think happened with Meadows when he first released these text messages and emails to the House Committee investigating January the 6th? Because... That's obviously been a gold mine. It's the reason why we know that those messages that he was scrolling through casually and somewhat indifferently were desperate calls from Fox News people like Hannity and and Laura Ingram begging him to do something. The reason we know about those messages is that Meadows gave them up, but then shortly thereafter he reversed himself and he got a million dollars donation from Trump. So what do, what do you think happened there, Chris? Well, it's hard to hard to know for sure, and and of course, I, I we don't know that um, 
we don't know that those weren't the innocuous uh, messages that he actually gave up to the committee. I mean, can you imagine what was on his, his encrypted apps if, if uh, you know, he, <laughs> the ones that he didn't give, give up? Um, and of course, we've, we've learned so much more from Cassidy Hutchinson, and I think we're only at the beginning of this process. I think there's a lot more to come out. Um, I have in my in my upcoming book, uh, The Fight of His Life inside Joe Biden's White House, um, I have uh, an untold story about the uh, the transition and how the the peaceful transfer of power was was carried out in a, essentially unbeknownst to Trump under his nose. Uh, there were people in the White House who made it happen. Um, it's 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 really as we all know by now, th this transition from Trump to Biden uh, was the most contentious and dangerous since the Civil War. It nearly ended in the destruction of democracy. Um, and, you know, Meadows is, is of course, one of the villains of, of the story. Um, but he's, he's the kind of guy, I have to tell you, Ian, I mean, I'm convinced that he was less a White House chief of staff than he was a kind of glad-handing maitre d' who was determined to please everybody. He would tell everybody, not just Trump, but but almost everyone what they wanted to hear. Uh, perhaps he wanted to tell the committee um, what it wanted to hear until he was suddenly, uh, you know, uh, slapped down by Trump. Um, who knows what was going through his mind. But it looks as though he, he engaged in witness tampering. What Cassidy... Hutchison gave the public was a glimpse at this reckless, mentally unstable, complete incompetent, mercurial, you know, man-child, toddler, behaving like a lunatic, which he apparently was pretty much in his entire tenure. I mean, you got glimpses of... president now or the chief of staff? <laughs> We're talking about Trump, <laughs> his behavior. I yeah. mean, it's always been the, the biggest cover-up from day one was how incompetent and out of depth out of his depth this man was in the White House. You get glimpses of it from people that I've spoken to who were in the room and, and the generals have made sort of vague remarks. But I think Cassidy was the first time you actually got a real glimpse of, of how out of control he is by throwing plates at the wall and ketchup drink, dripping down the wall of his uh, of the president's dining room off the Oval Office. Well, um, it would be comical if it weren't so deadly serious. And again, what I think we learned from Cassie Hutchinson was that this wasn't just a clown show. Uh, it was a it was a deadly serious clown show. Um, and Meadows and Trump knew exactly what they were doing. Uh, they knew that that the mob was uh, was heavily armed, uh, and they sent the mob up to the Capitol. Um, because they didn't, and they didn't care how many people might might die. Uh, it's it's that serious. Uh, and of course, as we all know, democracy essentially hung by a thread uh, when when the ceremony was disrupted. So um, you know, it's a mistake to think that this is um, a clown show or the gang that couldn't shoot straight because it's 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 too serious. Well, I got somewhat distracted in my long-winded question there, Chris. I mean, what I wanted to ask you was about the witness tampering charges that are emerging, and Mark Meadows may well be indicted by the Justice Department. I think I think the January 6th committee are building a pretty strong case. He was apparently, or through an intermediary, was warning Cassidy Hutchinson not to testify, and my sense is that what all of these people are about is covering up who Trump really was and how he really behaved. Isn't yeah. that the essence of what's happening here? Well, it wasn't clear to me in, in the case of the witness tampering that Meadows um, was involved or not. He may well have been. Uh, but uh, I thought I thought Cheney, I thought Liz Cheney was um, was vague about exactly who was involved in that. Clearly, um, it seems as though the it seems as though people in Trump's circle were involved for sure, um, and but I think it's also um, you know it's 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 it may be a difficult charge to 
to nail down um, when some some of those threats they certainly sounded they were right out of the mafia playbook, but sometimes they were they sounded a bit vague, uh, you know, be a team player and and that kind of thing. So uh, we'll see. But I, I don't think you need witness tampering to know that there were there there was criminality involved here. It it the fish rots from the head. There's no question that um, there was an attempt to defraud the American people by reversing the results of a free and fair election. Um, and, you know, it's I think that one of the defining tests of the Biden presidency, there, there are a bunch of them, certainly how he stood up to Vladimir Putin, certainly, uh, you know, the crisis of inflation and, and the other things. But but among the top two or three defining tests of the Biden presidency will be what his Justice Department does or does not do uh, when it comes to prosecuting Trump and his cronies, because we don't want to be a, a banana republic that that prosecutes the previous regime. But the only thing worse is to look the other way when someone is caught red handed trying to overturn democracy. Well, the, the impression I get is that since they're all covering up, and even those that found Trump's behavior appalling, like General Madison, General Kelly, they could go a lot further, couldn't they, and fill in this portrait of this outrageously incompetent, out-of-his-depth, mentally unstable man-child, you know, in the, in the most powerful office in the world. I mean, it got so bad at one point, I think it was General Milley was in, in touch with the um, Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, about the, the football, about whether or not uh, Trump was so unstable that he could start a nuclear war. So that's how bad it's been from day one. And I just wish that we could get a real picture. But the people like Meadows and company and the Secret Service guy, Anato, and who's a real Trumpster, do they want to keep the real picture, the real portrait of Trump's behavior from the public? Or... Is Trump's behavior okay with them? Because, you know, after all, they're not the Abe's team. They're not the B team. They're the D or the F team. I'm not so sure that it's um, thinking that Trump's behavior was okay. I, I think it's a matter of, uh, of not wanting to be in his crosshairs and, and not wanting to uh, testify before the committee unless, unless they have no choice. That's, that's disappointing. Um, it's... Um, it's it's a sad commentary on uh, you know back in I'm old enough to remember the Watergate days and uh, when when almost all of these people testified voluntarily uh, before the the Senate Select Committee and the House Judiciary Committee um, it's but I think there's an awful lot I agree with you there's an awful lot still to be revealed and uh, I'm not so sure it's going to be Mattis and Kelly but I certainly think Pat Cipollone. Uh, and others who were there uh, throughout those final days are are key, and I think there are going to be more revelations. And uh, and again, as, as I said, I mean, I, I there, if if you're interested, or if any listeners are interested in the whole story of uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and uh, Nancy Pelosi and the rest during those final days. Um, I, I write about it extensively and, and have new information as well in my upcoming book. Um, so I think there's still a, a lot of shoes to drop here. Well, in the last couple of minutes, let's talk about your upcoming book. Uh, if you feel you're not going to give too much away, there is some some disquiet about the White House now from a lot of Democrats. A member of Congress described the White House as rudderless, aimless and hopeless. What's going on in this White House? I mean, how did they drop the ball with Mansion and Cinema? It seems like they could have got a deal with them. It wouldn't have been anything like what Bernie Sanders want. But well, they maybe could have got $1.8 and now they ended up with nothing, and it was a terrible blow to Biden. And I'm wondering, since you've, you've covered all of these chiefs of staff going back to Eisenhower, or even before, I guess, What's the story with the way this White House is run? Well, you'll, 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 your listeners will have to read all about it in my upcoming book. They, you know, the publisher doesn't want me to give too much away, but what, what I can say is I do do cover that 
that whole period in in uh, in real detail. Um, and I I think there's no question about it. That whole period from the midsummer uh, into the late fall, when uh, it was hard for anybody to figure out where the where the White House stood, where Joe Biden stood when it came to uh, both uh, you know the bipartisan infrastructure plan and and Build Back Better, and nobody could really understand what was in Build Back Better. It was it was a mess, and it hurt Biden. It damaged him greatly. There's no question about it. his his approval rating went went into a nosedive in the summer, uh, and hasn't recovered. So there's there's no there's no doubt about it. And um, I think that um, you know Ron Klain, the White House Chief of Staff, was by all accounts. I mean, if you ask any of his predecessors, uh, the former chiefs of staff, Republican or Democrat, I think to a person, they would tell you that he was the most qualified person ever to take that job. Uh, that includes James A. Baker III, Leon Panetta. He had all the right experience um, and uh, you know a, a great relationship with Biden. I think Klain would, would, would tell you when it came to the legislative troubles that they had, that it's just, that's the nature of the beast when you are operating with razor thin margins uh, in the House and the Senate. Uh, this was not LBJ's Senate, it was not FDR's uh, Congress, and yet they came in with the most daunting set of problems since FDR. And the problems keep hitting them hard and fast. Oh yeah, exactly, only to be faced by uh, a, an almost perfect storm of, of of new crises, ranging from you know, inflation to the supply chain to the invasion of Ukraine. I, I titled the book, The Fight of His Life, my upcoming book, it'll be out in January, uh, but you can, uh, it can be pre-ordered wherever books are sold, including Amazon. Uh, but I titled it The Fight of His Life because Joe Biden's whole career has been a fight. His whole life has been a fight against adversity, tragedy, and bad luck. You know, he lost his uh, first wife and infant daughter in a car crash, lost his son Bo to a brain tumor, uh, lost two uh, two runs for, for the presidency. His father told him, get up. He always told him, get back up, and he did, and he won the presidency only to be confronted by an invasion of uh, democracy in the heart of Europe with, um, you know, the nuclear, with the specter of nuclear war. Um, so that is truly the fight of Joe Biden's life. Well, I look forward to the book and I thank you for joining us here today, Chris Whipple. Ian, thanks so much. Always good to talk to you. And again, I've been speaking with Chris Whipple, who's a multiple Peabody and Emmy Award winning producer at CBS's 60 Minutes and at ABC's Primetime. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Gatekeepers, How the White House Chiefs of Staff Define Every Presidency. And his latest book is The Spy Masters, How the CIA Directors Shaped History and the Future. And his forthcoming book is The Fight of His Life, Inside Joe Biden's White House. We're going to take a brief station break and back assessing whether the GOP, the party that shills for the plutocracy, can get away with portraying itself as the party of working Americans. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ben Burgess, a philosophy instructor at Georgia State University Perimeter College, a columnist for Jacobin Magazine and ARC Digital Media, and the co-host of the Dead Pundit Society podcast. He's the author of Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left, and his latest book is Cancelling Comedians While the World Burns, a critique of the contemporary left. And he has an article at the Daily Beast, Culture war, red meat is all the GOP serves the working class. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ben Burgess. Yeah, thank you so much for having me in. 
Well, thanks for joining us, Ben. And since you're in Atlanta, what do you make of the local district attorney there? She's subpoenaed uh, Senator Lindsey Graham and Rudy Giuliani and John Eastman. So, Ben, uh, she's also said that she could possibly indict Trump himself. So we all heard the Raffensperger shakedown, find me 11,870 votes, clear as day. So do you think finally, you know, given that Trump has been one step ahead of the sheriff all of his business life and political life, that it may be the DA in Fulton County, Georgia, who is the first to nail him? I mean, I'd like to think so. I'm not wildly optimistic. Uh, It seems like we never really hold uh, powerful people to account in this country. We we particularly don't hold uh, presidents to, to account. I mean, if you think about the kind of you know, crimes that have been committed by, you know, by recent presidents in, you know, in broad daylight, you know, that, uh, you know, Bush authorizing torture and things like that. So maybe Trump will be the first. I'd, I'd like to be wrong about this. So let's turn to your article at the Daily Beast Culture War. Red meat is all the GOP serves the working class. I mean, it's a pretty clever ploy, isn't it, to have a party, the Republican Party, which is essentially essentially shills for the plutocrats, having them remake themselves, and Trump, to some extent, did remake the party, into the party, as Ted Cruz says, the party of hardworking blue-collar men and women. In other words, the GOP is not the party of the plutocrats, but the party of working Americans. Yeah, I mean, that's what they want to claim. Um, as you say, that ball really got rolling there with Trump, because if you you know think back to the last election cycle before Donald Trump ran for president the first time, uh, Mitt Romney really was running pretty openly as the uh, as the candidate of plutocrats. You know, he would say things like corporations are people, my friends. Uh, and, but then Trump really started off this rebranding and all of these Republicans like Ted Cruz, who you just quoted, have really run with it. And so, you know, something that I like to point out whenever there's a good opportunity to do so is that the, the mismatch between this rhetoric and the way then all of their actual policy positions is, a wonder to behold. I mean, I'll just use one example that I didn't talk about in the article because I was talking about Texas specifically. But uh, several months back, there was a vote on uh, capping the price of insulin at $30, which, you know, I think it's obscene that, you know, uh, diabetics are charged for insulin at all. But all of the, you know, the most supposedly populist mega people in Congress, your Marjorie Taylor Greens, your Josh Howells in the Senate, they all voted against that. Well, Hypocrisy has always been live and well, but that's the whole game, as you point out, that you know the nature of the culture war is to polarize rather than unite. And owning the libs is a huge motivator in Trump world and amongst Republicans, mm-hmm. is it not? I mean, uh, let's go Brandon is, <laughs> uh, is their perfect example, isn't it? Because it basically, it's a way that you can attack Biden without using his name. In other words, F you Biden. Uh, and it's also a way to attack the mainstream press because, you know, the genesis of, of Let's Go Brandon is, is was a reporter misreporting what they were chanting. They were chanting F Biden and he translated it in, into Let's Go Brandon. Yeah, well, especially because it, um, you know, I mean, it came from a uh, from a NASCAR you know race so uh, the original the original incident that you're talking about that you know Brandon was the name of the driver who the uh, reporter was um, saying oh they're saying you know they're saying let's go Brandon when actually they're saying you know f you uh, Biden and uh, and so again it has that sort of salt to the earth ordinary people signaling right you know that like oh this is um, you know, these are just like ordinary people who would go to uh, to watch uh, to watch NASCAR, uh, and of course, on that you know cultural level, you know they love that stuff, you know, because that like is an easy, cheap way to paint themselves this way. But if you look at anything they actually stand for, the the disconnect is a wonder to behold. Uh, the 
Texas Republican Party just passed a, uh, you know, their 2022 uh, state platform, you know, which was the occasion for the article. And if you actually read that thing, um, you know, what a lot of people focused on was the, um, you know, really draconian and frankly, pretty evil social policy stuff, you know, going after gay and trans people and so on. But the disconnect between all of this party of hardworking blue collar men and women rhetoric and uh, what they're actually proposing is astounding. That platform uh, commits them to opposing uh, both federal and local uh, minimum wage laws. Uh, it uh, commits them to opposing mandatory uh, sick and family leave. You know, when municipalities you know try to pass that for uh, for city employees and contractors, uh, it uh, it commits them to opposing card check. You know, so it's harder to to organize a union. So. In every way that actually matters or makes a material difference to anybody's life, you know these these people are absolutely uh, not at all on the uh, on the side of you know of of anybody who's who's working a blue collar job. Any of the categories of people who are sort of called out in that Ted Cruz speech. Well, you've got Senators Ron Johnson and the Florida Senator as well, Scott who, by the way, is one of the biggest crooks in history. He, I think he had the biggest settlement in a, stealing from Medicare. I think he had to settle for $1.6 billion, which is an amazing criminal. Yet he's, mm-hmm. he was both a governor and now a senator in Florida. He wants to get rid of Social Security and Medicare, as does Ron Johnson. And it's amazing you know, how these po- programs are so popular, and they're very well run. I mean, Medicare is extremely well run, and so is Social Security. And if you didn't have Social Security, young people today who are struggling at any rate with student debt, etc., they'd be in a position of having to, from what meager earnings they have, take care of their elderly parents. I mean, how do you explain that disconnect between attacking popular programs and and yet somehow winning over the working class who depend upon these programs. Yeah, I mean, I should say, of course, that um, by and large, the Republican base does still tilt um, higher income on average uh, than the Democratic base, but they do they do still definitely win over um, plenty of working class voters, and they're they're trying to do more. Um, Despite the fact that, you know, you just gave the example of Social Security, you know, that Texas GOP state platform actually contains this bald-faced sentence, you know, we support the privatization of, uh, of Social Security. You know, they're not, they're not hiding the ball on that at all. Uh, and I'd say that the way that they managed to, um, you know, be as successful as they are in, in, in fooling as many people as they do is that they – you know, even though I mean the you know the parts of the party platform where they talk about this stuff are very um, bold and unashamed, and even though you know you can look at the votes that they cast, uh, they do everything in their power to to keep the sort of main discussion off of those points, right? I mean that they have this is why this is why the party platform, you know. Uh, Although it has all of the plutocrat-serving economic points that you know we just went over, uh, it also it also has lots of stuff going after trans people because that's a subject that they think you know they think plays better to them. This is why, um, you know, this is why they have you know if you watch you know Tucker Carlson, uh, for example, you know you're, you'll get just endless sort of culture war. Uh, signaling, you know, about going after celebrities and the media and so on, because anything that they can change the channel to that is fundamentally not about how material resources are distributed in our society uh, is going to be better for their narrative, which is that, you know, they sort of pretend that conservative cultural values are the unanimous values of, you know, um, ordinary people, the heartlands, of course, they're not, you know, they're, they're incredibly divisive, but their values, plenty of them. Uh, and, uh, and so they can say, oh, these, these liberal elites, you know, they're against, uh, they're against you on these values questions. And if that's the narrative that you're pushing, you can ignore the inconvenient fact that the genuine 
elites of our society, you know, uh, the, you know, the top 1% uh, of, uh, of income earners, you know, the, uh, the owners of uh, giant corporations are, are having their interests thoroughly served uh, by the Republican Party. And um, if they got their way, I mean, again, you, know, you can just, you know, look up this, uh, this platform, this is the largest red state in the country. Uh, and this is this is what their party activists uh, just uh, just passed. And you could look at the actual voting record of all these people. If, if they got their way, they would uh, we would be in even more of a late capitalist dystopia that, you know, even more recklessly endangered everybody else by serving the interests of the people at the very, very tip top. So your article quotes George Carlin. And it makes me think that, my God, we need a George Carlin. Maybe, you know, a reincarnation of George Carlin should be Biden's speechwriter. You quote Carlin in a 2005 stand-up special, Life is Worth Losing. Quote, they're coming for your Social Security money. They want your effing retirement money. They want it back so they can give it to their criminal friends on Wall Street. It's that simple. So... What's going to happen here with the Democratic Party? And, and there's all sorts of criticism of the malaise and the White House being overwhelmed by uh, all kinds of challenges in terms of foreign policy and inflation at home, etc. You know, traditionally they lose the midterms, the party that controls the White House. Is there any chance of them bucking history and coming up with a narrative that will trump this the incredibly false narrative of the Republicans the, as the party of the working class? I mean, I hope so. I would love to be wrong about this, but right now it doesn't look good. Uh, it actually looks really, really bad if you look at uh, some of Biden's approval numbers and, you know, it is approval numbers broken down by, uh, by demographics, about young people, for example. Uh, it's it's absolutely in the sewer right now. And this is the the problem because right now, um, Megan Day, who's an editor at, at Jacobin, I think put this very well recently where she said, look, people think we have a normal conservative party and a normal liberal party in this country. We really don't. We have a raging cyclone of reaction and we have a largely apolitical fundraising uh, machine that uh, that goes up against it. And that might be, you know, uh, a little unfair, but I think not much. I mean, if you if you look, for example, at, um, you know, the the, you know, Supreme Court ruling to overturn Roe v. Wade that was leaked six weeks in advance and almost literally all that was done in, uh, in response to it when it when it finally came out with all that lead time uh, was a bunch of earnest uh, fundraising appeals. Um, and certainly the idea of any kind of bold action like, um, you know, abortion clinics on federal land, you know, in red states, for example, is has been completely out of the question. Or you mentioned student loans earlier. Um, and that's actually something that, you know, the Biden administration agrees could be done uh, through uh, through executive action. You know, you could you could stop collecting. And Biden has at, at various points floated these trial balloons that they might forgive some student debt on a means tested basis. And they haven't even done it. Right? I mean, they've 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 very publicly thought about doing it a lot and they they haven't done it. So I'm I'm very I'm very pessimistic. I mean, I think that it if you were going to buck this historical trend that um, about the, you know, the party, you know, in power winning the, you know, winning the midterm after uh, losing the midterms after, uh, after winning the presidential election, if you were going to, uh, going to buck that, I think that you would have to offer people something really inspiring. I don't think you can just, you know, especially in a midterm, I don't think you can just run against the memory of Donald Trump. Well, I thank you for joining us here, Ben Burgess. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you so much, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Ben Burgess, who's a philosophy instructor at Georgia State University Perimeter College and a columnist at Jacobin Magazine and Arc Digital Media and the co-host of the Dead Pundit Society podcast. He's the author of Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left, and his latest book is Cancelling Comedians While the World Burns, a critique of the contemporary left 
And he has an article at the Daily Beast, Culture War, Red Meat is All the GOP Serves the Working Class. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking to the real driver of inflation, which is corporate price gouging as opposed to workers' wages. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Pia Mullaney, who is the co-founder and director of the Center for Innovation, Growth, and Society, and a senior economist at the Institute for New Economic Thinking, where she's the editor of their working paper series. She has held positions at the Harvard Institute for International Development and the Center for International Development at Harvard's Kennedy School, where she worked in collaboration with Asian and African governments on the development of healthcare and economic policies. Welcome to Background Briefing, Pia Mullaney. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And on Wednesday, President Biden spoke to a crowd of uh, mostly union workers in Cleveland, where he said, who is the backbone of this country? It's you, the American worker. I see you, I hear you, and I always have your back, I promise. So... What is uh, the Biden administration doing in terms of it seems that working Americans are being penalized, in effect, by the Federal Reserve's approach to dealing with inflation? And the federal, last week, Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell said he was more concerned about stopping inflation than preventing a recession. So is that what's happening here, that workers are being punished because of a perception over inflation? I think you're exactly right. I believe that's exactly what's happening. And the chairman of the Fed is not wrong in being concerned about wage price spirals, because if we look at what's driven inflation in the last several decades, every time we've had an inflationary period like this, it really has gone along with um, high wage demands, and wages have really been the thing driving inflation. But the situation we're in now is very different. We're looking at an inflationary period that looks quite different than what we've had in the last few decades. And in fact, what we're seeing now is rather than having wages pull inflation up, real wages have in fact been falling. So they've been acting as a dampener on inflation. And Unfortunately, the Fed is looking at the situation we're in and they're doing what they usually do to respond to inflation, which is to raise interest rates, which is intended to bring down inflation by lowering aggregate demand. And since what's driving this particular particular inflationary period appears to be much more the supply side effects and the pandemic effects, the war in Ukraine, it doesn't really make sense for them to be using this particular strategy. And let's be very clear, the way the strategy works is by reducing aggregate demand, reducing um, wage bargaining um, abilities of labor, and uh, softening the labor market so that wages in fact fall and unemployment increases. So rather than looking at what the real driver is, they're focused on, I believe, exactly the wrong things given the kind of inflation that we're seeing this time around. But aren't there some indicators uh, coming out recently that show that inflation is actually stopping or perhaps even reversing? Commodity prices are falling, rents in some places are falling, and uh, oil prices are going down. And Citigroup says that oil could go to $65 a barrel by the year's end um, if there's a, a recession, which, of course is the price you pay for what the Fed is doing, right? Well, we would hope to see a decline in oil prices for reasons other than a recession. It's true that commodity prices are declining. They were at historic highs. We were seeing incredible increases. And we're finally starting to see a softening in that. And we're starting to see oil prices decline a little bit. 
But if you think about the fact that what was really driving this was not aggregate demand, aggregate demand has been lower than potential GDP since the end of the since the beginning of 2022. So it would be great if we could actually see a reduction in some of the other factors, the supply side factors that were driving inflation, rather than having um, inflation slow on the backs of wages and workers coming through the form of a recession. So let's talk about the work that you're doing in, in exposing that inflation is caused by supply constraints and soaring corporate profits. Yes. So supply constraints are one piece of this. And as you point out, soaring corporate profits are the other. Uh, in general, when we have an inflationary period, you do find corporate profits rise to some extent. But what we're seeing is that this time around, some huge percentage of the inflationary pressures are coming from rises in corporate profits, more than 50%. And I believe that what's driving this is that we've seen such an increase in economic concentration so that we have corporations with so much more monopoly power that they have the ability not only to pass on the increase that they see in terms of inputs and wage increases, but actually raise prices much more than that so that they increase their profits. And in fact, we now have records, earning calls, where we have recorded executives of major corporations bragging about the fact that inflation is turning out to be very good for their bottom line because they can use it to raise profits much more than they uh, were able to before this. And um, President Biden has tried to call this out. He's pointed out that um, returns to the oil companies have seen historic highs. Um, Chevron, I believe, tripled its income to $6.3 billion in the last quarter. Exxon doubled it to $5.5 billion. And we're seeing that a lot of the increase in the prices we pay at the pump are coming not just from the supply side factors and the war, but also from the fact that oil companies are raising profits to this extent. We're starting to see a little bit of a softening in terms of these corporate profits, but they're still at historic highs. So we really need to ask how much of the long-term issue we're dealing with is the monopoly power of corporations that allow them to price gouge like this. And again, I'm speaking with Pia Mullaney, who's the co-founder and director of the Center for Innovation, Growth and Society, and a senior economist at the Institute for New Economic Thinking, where she is the editor of their working paper series. She's held positions at the Harvard Institute for International Development and the Center for International Development at Harvard's Kennedy School, where she worked in collaboration with Asian and African governments on the development of health care and economic policies. So... Biden, as you mentioned, has been calling out the oil companies for record profits. And curiously enough, um, I think the second richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos, criticized Biden for attacking the oil companies, saying that he's got his facts wrong. It's a bit rich, isn't it? <laughs> the second richest man in the world who made, who's, I believe his wealth increased exponentially during the pandemic when most people were suffering. Uh, particularly economically. So there's surely got to be more of a debate about what's really going on without us having to listen to the plutocracy exactly. or plutocrats. Absolutely. We really do need to be looking at why these companies are able to get away with um, raising prices to this extent. And, you know, if we're going to talk about monopoly power, we have to look directly at Amazon. We're looking at, you know, one of the biggest monopolies in the world. When we, um, when we look at what they were able to pull off during the pandemic, there is no question but that economic concentration contributed a huge amount to the fact that we've seen the kind of uh, profit rises um, with Amazon and with many of these other corporations. Um, and it's interesting because Biden is talking about uh, reducing the uh, taxes on gas. And we need to be very clear that the actual impact is going to be very low because it's really questionable how much of that tax decrease is going to be passed on to um, us at the pump. So you're absolutely right. We need to be trying to understand what's really driving this. And I believe that corporate profits and monopolies are a huge part of that. 
So what is going on then politically with the interpretation of the economy and the notion that inflation, according to pollsters, is the greatest concern and that the American people are upset with uh, this government and with with this president, his polls continue to sink. He was obviously trying to make a case that he's the president of working Americans and that his predecessor was the president of the 1% of the 1%. What do you think he, he can do to get over this hump? Because it does seem that we're going back to uh, James Carville's adage of it's the economy, stupid, and that's what's going to determine the next uh, elections in November. If we look at the fact that there are still a large number of job vacancies, we're seeing labor force participation rates rising since the end. I don't know that we're quite at the end of the pandemic, but since things slow down with the pandemic, we are seeing people go back to work, but they have not gone back at the levels needed to address the shortfall in um, employment. So we do have a huge number of vacancies, but we need to try and understand why people are not going back to work. And these are really longer term structural issues in the economy. We have never really dealt with the issue of childcare in the American economy and women's labor force participation is very low right now. We haven't looked at the fact that in the absence of universal health care in the presence of a pandemic, it makes it much harder for people to go back to work. When we heard about the great resignation, in part, we were seeing a backlash to the fact that working conditions in this country have not been favorable to low, um, low wage workers. I believe that what Biden should really be doing is to be thinking about what workers need to make them want to go back so that we don't see this kind of shortfall, rather than targeting wages, which you know already are declining in real terms, he should be thinking about how do we get people to go back in so that we start dealing with some of the supply side issues that are really driving inflation. I also believe he needs to start thinking about things like price control so that we don't allow for the price gouging that we've been seeing. There's been some discussion in Congress about bills to have one-time profit taxes, to do something about price gouging. I believe we need to be focusing much more on um, efforts like that and on price controls in order to actually deal with some of the driving forces, the real driving forces of inflation today. But in terms of messaging, surely the White House, and I don't know that President Biden did that yesterday in Cleveland, uh, came out with the kind of message that you are enunciating now, Pia Mulaney, and that is what's really behind inflation. I mean, when you have people like the minority leader of the Senate, Senator Mitch McConnell, saying that the main cause of inflation is stimulus checks. I mean, my God, my understanding is that the child tax credit was one of the most uh, helpful programs that we've ever had, and of course it was cancelled largely by Senator Manchin. So when you have people like McConnell coming up with these, this absurd narrative, surely you have to have a counter-narrative, don't you? You really should. I'm not hearing the counter-narrative that I'd like to be hearing. It's very clear that if it was the stimulus checks that we'd be seeing aggregate demand at a higher level than it is now, we'd be seeing it higher than potential GDP. And it really isn't. Further, inflation is really a global phenomenon. And if it were just our stimulus checks, I don't think we'd be able to explain what's going on in Europe and the rest of the world. So it's very clearly not being driven by the stimulus. And I have not heard enough of a pushback from the Biden administration. I have not heard them really point to what's truly driving this. Now, I should give them some credit because Joe Biden was the first president to really take seriously antitrust issues. So he's actually tried to strengthen um, the push against monopolization. And I believe that that's one of the long-term driving forces for the price gouging that we're seeing. On the other hand, I do believe the standard narrative of wage price spirals needs to be addressed. And I don't see the Biden administration going up against it the way I believe they should be. But are we in a situation where people who are 
listening to this idea that the economy is a disastrous and inflation is killing us and and Biden uh, is out to lunch and all of the stuff that you're hearing uh, from the Republicans and and quite often from uh, even from the Main Street press, it seems to be sort of getting this cumulative effect where the American public and even the workers, not necessarily the ones that Biden spoke to today, but a lot of the working Americans, many of whom voted for Trump, we may have a situation somewhat akin to the Stockholm Syndrome, where you eventually identify with your torture and you you <laughs> vote to empower the very people in the plutocracy who are basically creaming everything off the top, while you know the ninety nine point nine percent are stalled or treading water. I believe that that's true. And to be honest, I think that we've seen this issue since long before the 2016 election. And I think the Democrats chose to double down on identity politics rather than looking at the economic issues that were driving the um, backlash against them. And I'm now hearing Biden talk about getting rid of the Trump tariffs, which is, I believe, exactly the wrong move. To the extent that Rust Belt America was so disillusioned by the Democrats that they voted Trump in, if he removes these tariffs, he's once again going to be opening our steel industry, our um, manufacturing up to um, imports that are going to lower wages once again for working class America. So I do think you're right in pointing to something of a Stockholm syndrome. And I think it's time for the Democrats to start looking at the real promises they make. Biden's not wrong that we need to strengthen unions, but he needs to think about what we really need to do in order to increase labor's share of GDP, which has been falling for decades. And, you know, at the beginning of um, the recovery, we were hoping that we'd actually start seeing uh, labor earning a larger share of um, national GDP when we started seeing the great resignation and wages start to increase. But that hasn't happened, unfortunately. And by further softening the labor market, we're going in the wrong direction. So I think you're exactly right. We need to be turning our focus around 180 degrees. So just in closing, at yesterday's meeting with union workers in Cleveland, it's notable, at least the press have been pointing this out, that Representative Tim Ryan, who's running for the Senate, for the open Senate seat there, was not in attendance, not, nor was the Democratic candidate for governor, Nan Whaley, of course, Sherry Brown, the uh, other Democratic senator, uh, was there along with Marcy Kapta, whose district it was, and the Secretary of Labor were there. So the worst thing that could happen is <laughs> that the Democrats start deserting Biden, right? thats I don't know whether that's what's happening here, but there's at least a hint of it. Well, it remains to be seen, right? And there is some question as to whether or not they're going to be able to get the economy back onto a stronger footing. And I don't think what the Fed is doing is really headed in the right direction. I do believe that that's going to have an effect on um, our next congressional election and very much the presidential election. So um, it remains to be seen. Well, Pia Mullaney, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Pia Mullaney, who's the co-founder and director of the Center for Innovation, Growth and Society and a senior economist at the Institute for New Economic Thinking, where she is the editor of their Working Papers series. She's held positions at the Harvard Institute for International Development and the Center for International Development at Harvard's Kennedy School, where she worked in collaboration with Asian and African governments on the development of healthcare and economic policies. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. 
Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America A quiet voice singing something to me An angel song about the home of the brave in this land here I'm not afraid to